Good afternoon, my name is Dan Green and it's my privilege to read the scripture tonight. Mark 12, 13 through 17. And they said to him, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, and uh, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Now may be seated. It is good to see you, good to be with you this evening, and a happy Saturday to you. So glad that you're able to join us this evening. Thanks for the freedom that we have to be able to move services around and things like that, and thanks for your flexibility in being here. It's so good to see you and to be with you. Uh, and if you're not already there, turn, and turn to Mark chapter 12 in your Bibles, Mark chapter 12, and welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege to be able to open the Word with you and for you this evening. On Wednesday of this week, as Chief Justice Roberts led in the oath of office, President Biden swore with his hand on a Bible that with God's help, he would preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And when you think about that picture, it's really an incredible thing. It's incredible that in our day and age, that in a country whose people increasingly refuse to recognize the mere existence of God, let alone his authority, that God's name would be invoked as the hope and the help of its leadership. And of course, as that inauguration went on, countless people, millions, tens of millions, potentially hundreds of millions throughout the world looked on, some with elation, some with disappointment, some with fears, and some with relief. And one of the things that events like this do is they reveal in our own hearts where our hope has a tendency to lie. When we have those feelings of depression or we have those feelings of disappointment or we have those feelings of elation and excitement, it reveals something about our wiring. And to the extent that we have placed our trust or placed our hope in government, moments like that reveal to us our own weakness and our lack of dependency on God. And in the providence of God, without any planning on our part, we find ourselves this evening looking at this particular passage in which Jesus himself, for really the only time in his ministry, though it's recorded in other books, speaks specifically to how Christians ought to view government. And so there's a lot in this text and a lot of, a lot of practical things that we want to discuss, and so I want to look right away, beginning in Mark chapter 12 and verse 13. Here's what it says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. 
Now, if you'll remember the context of what's happening here, this is right on the heels of Jesus' Jesus's parable of the tenants. And in that parable, Jesus, Jesus foretold the fact that there was, in fact, judgment coming for the ruling class of Israel, that they had rejected God, they had avoided God, they had neglected the responsibility that had been given to them by God. And in exchange, there was going to be a day of reckoning coming for them. And if you remember that story, as the Pharisees were standing here, perceiving that this parable was actually directed at them, all of a sudden they were taken up by fear. They realized that there was a group of people around them, people that lived in that country who understood the meaning of Jesus' parable, and they were afraid that this crowd was going to turn on them. So they ran away. And as they began to regroup and began to think about what had just happened and began to think about this growing problem of who Jesus is, they they came to a decision that they needed to send back an envoy to Jesus to speak on behalf of these elites. And the internal makeup of this group is fascinating when you get into it. We're told first that some of these individuals who came were Pharisees. Politically speaking, they were Israeli nationalists. They resented the fact that the Roman government had occupied their country, had come in by force, taken it, had killed their countrymen in the process, had made an example of them. And as if that wasn't enough, they had then gone out and hired some of their own countrymen to levy unfair taxes on their own people to fund an invading, occupying government. And the Pharisees had no use for any of this. Politically, they wanted Israel to return to its independence, to its state of nationalism before God. They wanted God as their leader. They wanted the religious class as their leadership, but they had no use for the Romans. And then we're told that among this group was a group called the Herodians. The Herodians were an entirely different beast because they favored the political policies of Herod Antipas. Unlike the Pharisees, they had very little, to, if, if any, use for a god. In fact, they wanted Greco-Roman culture to influence this region even more than it already had. They wanted the paganism that marked the Roman Empire to become a stronghold in Israel. They personally benefited from the taxation that Rome was levying. So what in the world would these two groups who have nothing to do with each other politically have in common? Well, they both hated Jesus. As different as our politics may be in this country or potentially even in this room, what you saw played out in this scene was something infinitely more diverse. These people saw Jesus himself as a threat. And so they come to him in the language of this passage to trap him in his talk. Jesus was teaching something that was a threat to them. Because Jesus' teachings discredited the self-righteous standing of the Pharisees. That was put on display with, with no amount of nuance in the verses that we read last week. But in addition to that, Jesus' teachings were a threat to the political influence of the Herodians. Because Jesus taught about the kingdom. He taught about a responsibility that was beyond that of the Caesars or beyond that of the local officials or of Herod or of anybody else. And see, this is the amazing thing about Christianity that remains as true today as it was 2,000 years ago, because Christianity, for, for different reasons, is always disruptive to the expectations of both traditionalists and progressives. Now notice, as the story progresses in verse 14, and they came to him, this, this muddled group of people, and said to him, teacher, rabbi, we know that you are true and that you do not care about anyone's opinion. 
For you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Now, very clearly, these men are coming with their own agenda in mind. They know what it is that they're about to do, and so they come to Jesus with these sweet words of flattery, and we're not entirely sure how they delivered these words to them. It it could very well be that they were hoping to get into his good graces or to cover their intention in coming to him, and so they spoke these sweet words to him. It could be that they were speaking quite sarcastically and angrily. Uh, and in an angry fashion to him. Do you remember earlier in the book of Mark when it says that as the people heard Jesus teach, they talked about the fact that he spoke with such clarity and with such authority that the Pharisees, in fact, heard that and grew angry at Jesus as a result. So we don't know entirely what it was that was motivating the Pharisees and the Herodians' uh, specific language in this text, but what we do know is that they were completely insincere in what they said. They had absolutely no intention of listening to this man who they had just claimed spoke on behalf of God and spoke words of truth and was not impressed with people, but they came to him with these words anyway. And those statements, regardless of the intention with which they were delivered, those statements were in fact true about Christ, and we're going to come back to those later. And now here is the bait. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So finally, we get to the heart of the issue. They were asking about a tax. And the tax that they were specifically asking asking about is the exact same tax that we find Caesar Augustus levying in Luke chapter 2. If you remember that story, Caesar Augustus had sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed or counted, depending on the version that you're reading. But either way, the whole point was to get everybody back to their homeland so that an account could be made for the people who lived there, and then a tax would be levied on those individual families. This is that exact same tax that Jesus is now speaking about 33 years later. It was a tax on all the provinces of the Roman Empire, and this tax was controversial for a lot of reasons, but in this region in particular, it was particularly an affront to the Jewish people. Because for the Jewish people, this tax was a visceral financial reminder for them every single year that they they had been put into subjugation to a foreign power. They viewed this as paying homage and funding the invading armies of a foreign occupying force. And the Herodians, for their part, viewed this tax as their paycheck and their job security. And the trap that they set in this moment is to come to Jesus to ask his opinion on what is ultimately a complex issue, but to only give him yes or no options. Do we pay it or do we not? These are the two options that we're giving you, Jesus. So if he then endorses paying this tax, he's going to be viewed as a turncoat by the common people. But if he says, don't pay it, he could be arrested. Because to speak out against the Roman Empire, especially around issues relating to tax, and to speak critically of the government could get one arrested or even killed. And listen, nothing about this trap has changed in 2,000 years. The topics may be different and the conversations may be different, but 2,000 years later, this is still the ploy that, that religious legalists and political progressives have in common. They love to put people in a box. See, the pressure that we tend to feel in our day and age with, with things the way that they are culturally around us, the pressure that we tend to feel is that of the culture in which we live. 
where we are told in no uncertain terms, if, you, if we can get you to acquiesce to our belief system, if we can get you to sign on to our agenda in the name of progress, then you are no longer a threat. Or to paraphrase theologian Owen Strayan, he said it this way, part of the reason that so-called progressive Christians That would be Christians that begin to deny essentials of the faith, essentials of Christianity, moral stands that the Scripture takes, so on and so forth. The part of the reason that so-called progressive Christians do not experience any attack on their convictions is because a fallen world sees nothing in them to target. When we adopt a worldly system in the name of Christianity, we are no longer a threat to the world. In fact, the world is more than happy to have those who would claim the name of Christ but are are indistinguishable either in word or deed from those who do not claim the name of Christ. But to remain faithful to the words and the teachings of this book means that there will always be part of what we believe that is anathema to the world around us. Because Jesus makes all kinds of statements that are deemed unacceptable to our culture. And much like what Jesus experienced, we will inevitably be faced with loaded yes or no questions, the answers to which our detractors intend to hang around our necks. So the call then in this moment practically is to be like Jesus, to use the mind that God gave us and to rely on the Holy Spirit that indwells us so that we may rightly divide what we ought to do in particular circumstances, to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. See, in this moment, the Pharisees thought that they had him, but Jesus refused to be pinned in by their framing of the issue. And so he reframed it. Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? And in my mind, we read this as Jesus being exasperated. You're going to try this ploy again. Over and over, you try to trap me. And here we are again. And look at Jesus' response. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus in this moment asks for a coin. And he says, Whose picture do you see on this coin? And whose inscription is written on it? And the answer was that that coin had an image of Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor at this particular time. He was the son of Caesar Augustus. And the coin had a bust of his head. You can actually find a picture of this coin online if you want to go look at it. It had a bust of his head on one side with an inscription that read, Son of the Divine Augustus. And if you were to turn that coin over and look at the back, there was a picture of Caesar sitting on a throne in priestly robes with the inscription written around the outside reading, Pontiff Maxim, highest priest. This coin was a testament to the self-proclaimed deity of the emperor. And interestingly, the words that they chose to use to describe the emperor was the language of God himself that Caesar Augustus had claimed actual divinity, that he was, in fact, God, and that Tiberius Caesar, his son, was serving as the highest priest. This was a direct affront to the nature and person and character of Jesus Christ. But notice Jesus' unusual response. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
and they marveled at him. Now, these, these words are so familiar to us. Whether or not you grew up in or around Christianity, this is language that is commonplace in our culture, but, but this language is actually quite subversive. I mean, Jesus starts, and he begins by saying, look, this coin that I'm holding up has Caesar's face on it, and it declares who this coin actually belongs to. So pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And just as the Herodians were giggling with delight in their own heart that Jesus had just validated their position, he finished his sentence and rendered to God the things that are God's. And in this one sentence, Jesus had subverted all of their expectations. See, Jesus did something unusual. He legitimized in this moment the rightful role of government. And that's not surprising to us, or it ought not be surprising to us, because it was God himself that ordained earthly governments to begin with. We know that God himself ordains and uses and places the governments that exist. And understand, by the way, that that doesn't mean that every government is inherently doing right. In fact, throughout the Bible, what we see is God giving some leaders to bless his people. We think of people like Joseph ascending to the second highest position in Egypt, even though he came from Jewish lineage. And he was brought specifically into one moment so that he could provide for his kinsmen. We think of people like Moses, who though he should have been killed in his infancy, ends up being adopted into the home of Pharaoh's daughter so that he could ultimately bring deliverance and freedom to his people. See, God often uses nations, uses governments, uses people to bring blessing. But God also uses people and nations and governments to judge his people. In fact, there's a whole book about it called Judges, specifically chapters 8 and 9 if you want to read on your own time. But either way, in this moment, God has legitimized the role of government, and as such, understand this. Here's what Jesus is saying. We are subject to governmental authority. But then by saying, render to God the things that are God, Jesus is making this subversive point that Caesar, who claimed divinity, who claimed to be God himself, was in fact not God. And Jesus is saying, give Caesar his coin. After all, it has his his face stamped on it. But remember, understand this, Christian, there is likewise a stamp on your life that you have been indelibly marked with the Imago Dei, the very image of God stamped into your soul. And as such, for those who know Christ, we must remember where our ultimate loyalty lies. See, Jesus is declaring to his followers and to us that we have a much higher authority and that our citizenship in a nation, while important, is secondary to our citizenship in heaven. So how does all of this play out? Well, notice first the specific language of Jesus because he does not say in this passage, give to Caesar everything that he asks. Rather, what he says is we give him what is his. We give him an amount based on his legitimate claim or his legitimate authority. So one helpful commentator painted the picture this way. He said, imagine a government came to a people and said, we want 100% of your income and we want 100% of your wealth. Ought Christians obey in that particular moment? And this commentator, with whom I happen to agree, says, absolutely not. Because to obey in that particular moment would be to run afoul of other scripture that demands that Christians, for instance, take care of their own family. 
provide for their own household, give for the work of the ministry. So should we follow in in an extreme scenario like that? Clearly not, because Scripture would then be coming in conflict, conflict with other Scripture, and we have, to, we have to use our wisdom in understanding those particular scenarios. So how then ought we think about ideas relating to faith and government? Well, the same commentator helpfully encourages us to look at our responsibility through the lens of rightful authority. And here's what he says. Scripture is clear that only divine authority is absolute. God, through Scripture, gives men and institutions certain authority, but this authority is always limited. For instance, wives are are to submit to their husbands, according to Ephesians chapter 5. Children are to submit to their parents, according to Ephesians chapter 6. And believers are to submit to their elders, according to Hebrews chapter 13. But the authority of husbands and parents and elders is limited, and so is governmental authority. In other words, to be a disciple of Jesus necessitates that you see Jesus first and foremost as your king, and that you see every other earthly authority as subservient to him. By nature, it necessitates that there will be issues and policies where Christians find themselves on the outs with governmental rules and authorities. So here becomes, or here comes the incredible practical question that Christians must face. How should we, especially in our context as Americans, with the privileges and the freedom of our governance, how should we navigate our responsibilities as both Christians and citizens? And to help you think through those issues, I'm going to humbly submit these ideas to you. I'm going to give you two questions to ask yourself and five rules of thumb to consider. The first question, I think, when we, begin to, when we begin to wrestle with those ideas of faith and governance is this. First question is, who is our ultimate authority? Now, we've already established that, but just let me pose that question in a different way. When God and government disagree, to whom are we responsible to obey? We see this in places like Acts chapter 4, verses 19 through 20, and Acts chapter 5, verse 29. So read Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 in particular, and what you'll find is that there is a very clear point at which Christians have to determine whom they obey when God and government come into conflict. And in that particular passage, Peter and John are out preaching to the people in Jerusalem. They're proclaiming the risen Savior, the salvation that can only be found in Him. And the local authority, which happened to be both religious and governmental, came to them and said, you have to stop this preaching. You're riling everybody up. You're making everybody upset. People are turning over their lives for you. You've got to stop preaching this now. And in both of those passages, what you find is Peter and John putting forward the same answer to them. We must obey God rather than men. If a law or a governmental action violates the mandates of Scripture, we must obey God and not government. So that's the first question. The second question is this. So if, if God is our ultimate authority, then for Christians particularly in our American context, who is our earthly authority? See, for, for Jesus and for the disciples, their earthly authority was very clear. It was a man named Caesar. And this is who Caesar is in this point of time. He is essentially the supreme authority. There are hardly any checks on his power. 
And so when Caesar came into a region, he would first dominate it militarily. He would defeat the local army. Then according to history, what we know is that he would go in and he would select certain people in the town, men, women, and children. He would line up crosses on the road entering into that city. And on those crosses, he would nail up men, women, and children just to demonstrate his authority and his power. So that when you walked into that town, you would be reminded as you walked past people still living and breathing and screaming in pain, who was in charge in this place? What Caesar said went. There was no argument and there was no question. And then once his authority was established, he would come in and he would pay local people. He would pay the people who were your friends and your neighbors, whom you went to synagogue with or who you worked with or who your kids went to school with, and he would pay them to collect taxes from you, creating internal division and chaos. Essentially an informal police state where people turned on one another. My point in saying all of that is this. At this time, there is no means of standing against the government. And the question then that we as Americans must ask is this. Who is our Caesar? And I think that question is actually an important and admittedly a challenging question for Christians, for Americans rather. But I would submit to you this answer, and I think we saw that answer on Wednesday, when President Biden took the oath and swore to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. In our nation, no man or woman, no elected or appointed official is above the Constitution of the United States of America. And our founders, in their God-given wisdom, established documents which guaranteed particular freedoms. And so Christians ought to use those freedoms to stand for the truth and for the continued preservation of those freedoms, lest we lose them. And that takes wisdom and discernment. So here are five rules of thumb to consider as we think about how we ought to approach particular topics. First, with no mistake and with Jesus as our standard, we must submit where we are able to submit. When the government uses the power lended to it by the people and the Constitution to pass laws that do not violate the Word of God or our Holy Spirit-informed consciences, we ought to obey. When God and government are not in conflict, we have a responsibility before God to obey that government. And I think that's a fairly straightforward understanding of our responsibility, that we submit where we are able to submit. Second, we reform where we are able to reform. So understand, brothers and sisters, we have an incredibly unique and rare, in terms of the history of the world, a unique and rare opportunity to actually be engaged in the political and governmental practice of our country. And for many Christians, they see a divergence in their Christianity and in their politics or in their Christianity and their view of what government is. But, but understand that because of the unique and rare position that we have to actually influence our government, we ought as Christians, as best we are able, in the same way that we would levy our influence in any other aspect of our life, whether it be in the work or in the home or in the neighborhoods in which we live, that we would use the positions in which we've been entrusted to further 
the kingdom of God. So Wayne Grudem in his book, Politics According to the Bible, says it this way. Christians should seek to influence civil government according to God's moral standards and God's purposes for government as revealed in the Bible when rightly understood. To influence, listen to this, to influence does not mean angry, belligerent, intolerant, judgmental, red-faced, and hate-filled influence, but rather winsome, kind, thoughtful, loving, persuasive influence that is suitable to each circumstance and that always protects the other person's right to disagree, but that is also uncompromising about the truthfulness and moral goodness of the teachings of God's Word. So when we think about this, we think scripturally about people like Esther and people like Joseph. These are people who loved God faithfully. In dangerous situations, they continued to put God first. And both of them, through God's providence, found themselves in the middle of worldly, godless political systems. Yet it was those very same worldly and godless institutions through which their presence and their wisdom and their winsomeness, they were given opportunities to influence the authorities for the sake of blessing God's people and accomplishing his will. Though our citizenship is in another kingdom, we have been placed here intentionally, purposefully to do his good will. So first, we submit where we must submit. Second, we reform where we're able to reform. Third, we disobey where we must disobey. When our culture or when our government asks us to do things that violate the word or the tenets of God, we do not and cannot obey. And our disobedience in such circumstances is not to make a show, it's not even to prove a point. It is to demonstrate that our lives first and foremost belong to the king of the universe, not to any particular governmental system or nation. And we see an example of this in the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, chapter 6, we're given the story of Daniel himself. If you remember, his whole life story is fascinating. He's first brought into the Babylonian Empire through God's providence. He begins to work his way uh, up the ranks, begins to influence people that are around him. And finally, in Daniel chapter 6, we find him in this moment as one of three primary rulers who reported only to the king himself of the Medo-Persian Empire. The three rulers, Daniel and two of his cohorts, were only outranked by King Darius. And in Daniel chapter 6, we find the other two rulers plotting against Daniel. They're trying to figure out a way to take him down, and so they come to the king and they say, King Darius, we know that you're a great and noble man. We know that you're a gracious man and a generous man, that you're a wise man. And so here's what we're suggesting. For 30 days, you inform the people that they are to make no other petitions, either to God or anybody else, no one other than you. And we want you to sign it into law so that under this Medo-Persian standard, it cannot be revoked. And that way you will get the due reward of your goodness and your generosity and your wisdom. So King Darius, not realizing what it was that they were plotting to do, signs the law. And Daniel, upon hearing it, realizes that he now has a conflict. The government, not only to which he is responsible, but the government of which he is a part, has now just demanded that he may not pray to the one true God. But Daniel chapter 6 records for us what happens. He hears the news, 
he heads into his house, he opens up the windows, and he prays as he always had. And for that, he was thrown into a den of lions. See, in some nations, the government bans the gathering of the church. It bans the teaching of God's word. Or in some nations, the government's tyranny is of a more nuanced variety. They begin to ostracize or belittle or make uncomfortable the lives of the people who refuse to bend to particular views, to affirm particular beliefs, or to use particular language. And the truth of this passage from the mouth of Jesus himself is that there may be issues in which it is good and right for Christians to participate in civil disobedience so long as we're willing to endure the consequences of those actions. And the responsibility of the Christian in such a scenario is to hold fast to truth, to the definitive truth that we know from God's word. So we submit where we can submit, we reform where we're able to reform, we disobey where we must, where we must disobey, and the fourth is really a practical encouragement, and that is to extend grace to one another in the gray areas. So here's what I mean. There, there may come issues in which Christians are, are divided on how they ought to respond to particular government mandates, laws, rules, or restrictions. Where the Bible is not explicitly clear, on what a Christian must do. And what's interesting in this text is that there is very little extrapolation on the part of Jesus Christ to explain how the spheres of faith and government interact in a Christian's life. There's a quote that I'm fond of. I wish I knew to whom I could attribute it, but the quote that I'm fond of is this, wisdom is knowing what to do in the 90% of life that the Bible does not address. And for that, brothers and sisters, we, we need each other the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We need the body of Christ to be able to, in a unified and loving and caring way, be able to work through and talk through and have conversations about various issues. We need most of all the Holy Spirit's insight into our lives to reveal to us what we ought to do. But for instance, in this country, are we responsible to obey when a governmental official steps beyond the authority of their duly elected position? I ask this question really as a thought exercise, but let me, let me illustrate it this way. Imagine that I went and told my son, son, I want you to go to the store, and I want you to find some food, and I want you to steal it and bring it home to give it to your family. Now, if I were to give that instruction to my son, I have authority in my son's life. It is, it is my authority to which my son is ultimately responsible. But in giving him an order that would cause him to violate the word of God itself, my son rightly ought to tell me, no, I can't do that. But imagine if I went up to Seth, who I didn't tell I was going to use as an illustration, but imagine if I went up to Seth, who read, scripture, uh, read the uh, call to worship for us, and I said, Seth, I don't care that it's 10 degrees outside. I want you to get out there and wash my car. Well, I have no authority to make such a claim in Seth's life, even though what I've told him to do is not inherently a violation of the law of God. I haven't given him an instruction that violates God's law, but I do not have that parental authority in his life. So here's why I mention all of this. I mention it not to encourage you towards a particular action on any particular topic, but rather to illustrate how wisdom has to dictate the actions of God's people. 
that we ought to be thoughtful in thinking through what are complex and nuanced issues. So brothers and sisters, let's think critically. Let's seek the Spirit's wisdom on issues that are less than clear. Finally, number five, I call this a rule of thumb, but it's not fair to call it that because it's a biblical command. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Do we actually believe, and I, I mean this question seriously, do we actually believe that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord? I mean, we say that and we read that in scripture and those are tenets that we, that we hold to, but do we actually believe it? Because at least speaking for myself, so often I just presume, well, I can pray for this, but what are the chances? And, and regardless of where you find yourself politically and regardless of who's in the White House or who's in the Senate or the House of Representatives or whatever it is, certainly, most likely, all of us have had moments where we've begun to wonder that. Does God actually intervene? Does he actually hear? Does he actually move? And not only just prayer for our elected officials, though certainly that's a part of this conversation, but prayer for, our, for, for God to deliver wisdom to us, to make it clear what it is that we ought to do in what are difficult situations. In the face of opposition or even persecution, how are we to act? How are we even to know how to act? All of that takes wisdom, but it also takes example. And the example of how we are to act is actually found in this very same story because we are to act like Jesus. No surprise there. But look how it plays out in verse 14. Notice what the Pharisees and the Herodians said about Jesus. They say four different things about him. Five, if you include the fact that they call him first rabbi, teacher. They recognize that this man has a gift. But then here's the four things they say. First, he tells the truth that Jesus was not willing to lie. He was not willing to know or was not willing, rather, to bend what he knew to be true. He wasn't going to soften the truth. He wasn't going to bend the truth. He was going to declare what was right and what was true and what was good. Are we truth-tellers? How about to the extent that culture wants to, wants to change how we define morality, wants to change the definition of what a family actually is? Are we actually willing to be truth-tellers when it begins to cost us? Jesus tells the truth. Second, he does not care about anyone's opinion. And I love that this is in there because if I'm honest with you, man, this is a struggle for me. It's hard for me not to care about people's opinion. And when it says that, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about people, and it doesn't mean that he wasn't willing to listen to what people had to say, but what it's saying is ultimately this, that we have a tendency to massage the truth about what we believe in order to account for other people's opinion. Or we might say one thing to one person and another thing to another person because we want to be in people's good graces. Listen, Jesus was both wise and gracious, but he would not be moved on what he believed to be right by other people's opinions. Third, Jesus was not impressed by people. And whether it's someone's title or station or wealth or attractiveness or influence, Jesus interacted with them the same. And fourth, he teaches the way of God. 
that everything that he cared about was communicating who the creator God of the universe was and is. And if we want to know how we ought to look as a man, as a woman, as citizens of this country, this is the picture. And notice the response of the Pharisees and the Herodians to the truth-telling, lack of opinion-giving, not being impressed by people, Jesus. They marveled at him. Though they sought to kill him, they marveled at him. See, this is what happens when people of truth and conscience and boldness and grace are winsome in the public square. Despite their hatred for him, they couldn't help but marvel. Are we marked by that kind of truth? Are we marked by that kind of grace? When political conversations come up and we get heated, when people say things that they know are going to press your buttons, how do we respond? Well, in Jesus' response, though they disagreed with him and even hated him, they marveled at him. And ultimately, look where all of this led in Luke chapter 23. You don't have to look there, but I'll, I'll read it for you. In Luke chapter 23, what you find is the show trial of Jesus. He's gone through all of this mockery and all of this mistreatment, and in that moment, the assembly that is gathered there accuses Jesus of insurrection. Because what they accuse him of, of Luke chapter, in Luke chapter 23, is they, they came to the council and they said, he forbids people to pay tax to Caesar. Now, we know that's not true. We just read it. But that's the accusation they levy against Jesus in this moment. It was a blatant lie. And likewise, potentially in the days ahead, there will, there will doubtless be accusations and falsehoods hurled at the people of God. And you may or may not be in the position to face death for your beliefs, but what if it costs you your job? What if it costs you your reputation? But understand this, brothers and sisters, the lesson for us in the life of Jesus is that he recognized what belonged to Caesar and what belonged to God. And he was, listen, he was fine with giving to Caesar what was legitimately owed to Caesar. And he wasn't calling for Christians to be spoiling for a fight. Far from it. But he absolutely would not, under any circumstances, give Caesar or the religious leaders or the crowds or anyone else what only belonged to God because the truth mattered to Jesus. And he wouldn't bend the truth, and he wouldn't accept falsehood for the sake of the acclaim of others. He taught the way of God, and that without exception. And get this, it cost him his life. But as Jesus hung on that cross, he made good on his teaching in this text. Because as he struggled to breathe, the final words that he spoke were these. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A perfect, holy, righteous spirit that in his own humility was stamped when Jesus became man with the image of God. And in the most poignant way imaginable, Jesus Christ proved that the jeering crowd and the corrupt Sanhedrin and the mocking soldiers could not take what only belonged to God. 
that just like the image of Caesar on the coin, God's image is stamped on you, and because of that, you can be assured of his faithfulness and strength. See, when Caesar was the emperor of the known world, the creator of the universe was still on the throne. And despite whatever questions or fears anybody may be experiencing, now or in the future, we can rest and remain confident in his perfect kingship. So brothers and sisters, be brave and courageous in the Lord. And as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give only to God what belongs to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the timeliness of this text. And God, I don't pretend to know where, um, where everyone's at in this room, uh, where people's minds are at. I don't pre- pretend to know um, how people are feeling in this moment, but God, here's what I know. I know that our tendency is to try to rely on our own strength and our own power, on our own decision-making and on our own wisdom. Our tendency is to depend upon the things over which we have, uh, uh, which we have control or upon the things where we feel like we have control. And so, Lord, whether we in this moment feel in control or feel out of control, would you help us realize, God, that you are permanently in control, that you have not left the throne, that your faithfulness endures, that we experience unbelievable gifts of your freedom and your generosity in this country, and help us to use those freedoms to proclaim the goodness, the salvation, and the hope that can only be found in you. And we'll be sure to give you praise and honor and glory for it. And all God's people said, amen.